Support for Pivot comes from Vanta. When it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices, things can get complicated fast. Now, you can assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more with a single platform, and that platform is Vanta. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform helps you continuously monitor compliance alongside reporting and tracking risk. Plus, you can save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. To learn why thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection, unify risk management, and streamline security reviews, watch Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash pivot. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash pivot to watch Vanta's on-demand demo. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. Scott Galloway is out today, who knows what he's doing. So we've got a very special co-host in his place. She joins me early today after taping one of her first episodes as host of MSNBC's 11th Hour. Welcome, Brian Williams. Oh, no, Stephanie Rowe. A much shorter version I, of Brian Williams, both from the state oh, of New Jersey. Oh, in so many ways. Yeah. So <laughs> many ways. So many ways. So talk to me about how the first week on the job was. You're, you you couldn't be more different than Uncle Brian. Uh, I, I hate to do this, but what were you, That was that vinyl that you were wearing, white vinyl on the first night? Uh, you know what? It was pleather, to be perfectly honest. It was it was pleather. Okay. I thought a lot about what I was going to wear, and I thought pleather might be a good call. Um, listen, it's been a super stressful week. Um and there's tons of news going on. So this whole idea and the pressure that I've been under. Listen, Brian Williams is a hero of mine, an icon at NBC. And sort of when I got this opportunity and everyone said, so what show are you going to make? I was like, um, I'm going to join Brian Williams' team. And I, I think a lot of people often think, oh, what are you going to call that show? And, you know, a lot of people love to use their last name and turn it into something. Mm-hmm. Brian made an, a great right. show that has a great audience and I'm joining it. And um, right now, and and what is why? What's the difference between morning and night? Is is it like you know we have this long uh, text chain a bunch of friends of ours, including Stephanie, and we're like, is it going to be naughtier? Is it going to be sassier? What is what is? How do you look at it though? Because you have to make it yours. And uh, and what's the difference between what you do in the morning and night? I think you know Brian and I. I'm probably uh, by nature naughtier and more sassy than Brian is. But but the difference really between day and night is. um, time, right? At 11 o'clock at night, you've got a lot more time to go deep in conversations. At 9 a.m., we're really covering news, news, news. Now, in cable and MSNBC, nighttime really is where we have perspective shows. And while I'm definitely not an opinion person, right? I don't have deep ideology. um, I am excited to have a little bit more flex in what we cover, because I think there's a huge difference between having a point of view, which you can absolutely change uh, and having 
deep ideology. And so, you know, much like Brian, a lot of our guests are going to be reporters, you know, not just correspondents who are covering a story today, but really reporters who know their beat. And if you're somebody who's covering, right, Kara, you are someone with an opinion because you have been covering a beat for years and years. Yes, That's yeah. very, very different from being an activist with ideology who has a goal of an outcome. And uh, I think at 11 o'clock at night, there, there are people, sure, who watch cable all day, but there's other people who just want to know, what's the most important thing? What do I need to know? And how do I get ready for tomorrow? And that's kind of our game plan. So we're, I'm joining Brian. And team. you've jumped into huge news. I mean, yes. boy, like, you know, talk about like jumping into the fire. What has that been like? And how do you decide? Obviously, Ukraine is the, sto- is the story, uh, period. Um, it really gives you from a... <laughs> From a programming standpoint, you're really ripping up the script because when I, when I think back to we're starting the show, what are the, you know, who are the guests going to be? What are the ideas? Like all that flies out the window. And right now we're just trying to help people get as much information as they need to know about Ukraine. And I would say maybe what I'm really trying to do when there's giant news like this, you have a chance of an audience then that's bigger than your traditional cable news audience that wants the wonky attention. policy. You've got people who are simply saying, mm-hmm. what the hell is going on on the other side of the world? And we're trying to focus on that for people who don't know every in and out of all of the policies. They're not foreign policy people. Just, you know, what does this mean to us? Why do I need to care? So for me, I don't know. Do you ever, you know, I just last night when we we started, you know, was really our first show. Um, and Gary Kasparov was one of the first people we had on. Gary, you know, chess grandmaster, but he's written many, many Very books. Outspoken. Um, and he yeah. was the one who said, winter is coming. Putin is a madman. And so now here we are realizing his fears. And uh, he kind of walked us through, not a snarky I told you so last night, but this whole idea that we're going to have diplomatic talks, you know, Ukrainian delegates and Russian delegates. He's like, what are you, crazy? Putin is completely isolated. And if you think Ukraine is the only place he's going for, you're sorely mistaken. And that point is why people really need to pay attention. Those people who say, I don't even know where it is on a map. What does it matter to me? It certainly matters because it's a threat to democracy. And I think maybe the amazing thing that we've seen this week, think about all of the Western countries that have coordinated around these sanctions. I mean, extraordinary what they've gotten done. Yeah, yeah, and yet there's still fear in Poland and Finland and Sweden and other places and Germany, especially the first time Germany's added to its defense budget and Switzerland hasn't I mean, been neutral. Switzerland, which is their really brand quite is neutral. Switzerland. Yeah, not today. Anyway, we'll talk about the, obviously the latest developments in Ukraine and a new investigation into TikTok, which has to do with China, also, uh, which is also in terms of the the social media space and manipulation and things like that. We'll talk with author uh, Gall Beckerman about the difficult relation between social media and social progress. But first, a correction. Earlier this week, my absent co-host Scott cheered on two teams in a soccer match, of which I knew nothing about. Um, but he got the name of the match wrong. It was the League Cup Final, not the FA Cup Final. Thank you to everyone who wrote in about that. Again, sports ball is not my area of expertise and obviously not Scott's. Anyway, let's check on some headlines. Uh, Melinda Gates, wow, spoke about her divorce from Bill Gates for the first time in an interview with Gail King. Let's play a short clip. People look at you, Melinda French Gates, and say she has it all. Well, I think it's really important to say, look, I had a lot of tears for many days. I mean, days where I'm literally laying on the floor and the carpet, you know, this close to me, thinking... 
how can this be? How can I get up? How am I going to move forward? And days I certainly was angry. That's part of the grieving process. You're grieving a loss of something you thought you had and thought you had for your lifetime. So I was not expecting this from her. She's She plays it very close to the best friend. You interviewed her. It's all business, usually what she's working on, uh, which was a lot of the philanthropy and some things around education or whatever she happened to be working on. She's a very serious uh professional demeanor. I was sort of surprised by this. What do you think? Uh, I know her pretty well, too. I was surprised by it. But at the same time, um, Melinda's the real deal. And she mm-hmm. doesn't want to be treated like or viewed as Bill Gates's plus one who does stuff at the foundation, mm-hmm. right? She is a force. Mm-hmm. And it certainly sounds like, and, you know, kind of reading between the tea leaves, uh, she really went through something with him. And I don't, it doesn't appear that she's going to air all of their dirty laundry, but it almost seemed like she was saying that person I was living with, it wasn't about forgiving someone for doing something. It was about a a person Mm -hmm. I was married to living a different lifestyle. And that's Mm -hmm. not, I was surprised to see Melinda Gates be so vulnerable, but the reason it's so refreshing when people of influence, um, Mm kind of not show you their dirty laundry, but show you how complicated life is. It kind of gives freedom. It gives license to everyone else that like life is bumpy and ugly, but it doesn't mean you can't lead an extraordinary one. And so I think it's great that she did it. At the end of that interview, the piece that you saw, she said, 2022, it's a new life for me. Why though? I I just didn't know why. I just was, she wanted to say it, I think. She just wanted to say it publicly because she's been silent and Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I think back to when I used to, I'm sure you did these interviews when I used to interview Bill and Melinda, when their letter would come out and listen, it would always be an annual letter they, they put out for people who don't know, but let's be honest, it would be, and when they would come for interviews, it would be, everybody would want to interview Bill and they were a package deal. And she probably felt like she didn't get the credit that she deserved and maybe she didn't. And now she wants it. Right. These, especially from a philanthropy standpoint, she's got a whole lot of money to give and she wants to give it in a purposeful way and be a voice of influence. And she's saying, I'm here to do that. Right. I think she's going to. And she she also has pivotal ventures. She's also an investor. She's been doing a lot of investing in women uh, run companies, et cetera. So I suspect she wants a higher profile. In in a very different way. You know, people love to like Mackenzie Bezos, Melinda Gates, Mackenzie Bezos in the most extraordinary fashion is giving her money away. Quite, you know, she's giving it away in a big public fashion, but she remains very quiet about it and is going to stay that way. Melinda's different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, other things, something that you know a lot about Jerome Powell said the Fed is ready to raise interest rates, and the Federal Reserve Chair said he will move to fight inflation. The move comes as the Ukrainian war has already raised gas prices and probably will further. But Powell says the effects of that war in the U.S. remain highly uncertain. So, if the issue is gas prices, shouldn't Democrats seize the moment and propose clean energy subsidies? Obviously, they're releasing um, uh, gas so that we'll have from our different reserves um, and liberate West from Russian oil. Um, Biden has said nothing's off the table when it comes to banning Russian oil imports. And still, the oil prices, I think they're higher than $113 a barrel. I saw $117 a barrel. So talk a little bit about these the interplay between energy prices, interest rates, and inflation. So the gas prices thing is really rough. It doesn't matter how far, how well we're doing in the economic recovery, because we are doing well, right? 
uh, unemployment mm-hmm. is at four percent. Biden jobs, created six and yeah. a half million jobs. Wages are up. All mm-hmm. those things are great. Uh, consumer spending is up. Household savings. However, look how he's polling, mm-hmm. especially in terms around the economy, very low. And it's because of inflation. Mm-hmm. It's because of how people feel. And when gas prices are high, it's a political disaster because you could have a great new job with a great new salary. But on your way to work, you're driving by six gas stations and people pay attention to the price of gas. And they do. My son was just saying, look at that price again. I was like, what do you care? You're not paying for it. I mean, it's my mom's <laughs> favorite topic. And so this is an issue yeah. for the Biden administration. Um They say nothing's off the table. Earlier this week, they're like, well, they're releasing um, barrels from the strategic reserve. It's a drop in the bucket. I mean, we could see things that we didn't expect. You know, they could potentially strike a deal with Iran. I just asked the question last night. I wasn't I certainly wasn't advocating for it. I asked uh, Secretary Buttigieg. I said any shot the president could uh, authorize the Keystone Pipeline, which and and Twitter just lit me on fire. Um, Biden's in a tough spot. (laughs) You look pretty good. And Jerome Powell is too, right? If you want to start to address inflation, it's about raising rates. Now, given the situation in Ukraine, it gets hard. But I just think back, why are rates as low as they are, Kara? Interest rates are supposed to be at zero when you're in an economic crisis. They have been extraordinarily low for way, way, way too long. It's why the stock market did so well. And it was just like this giant, giant safety net. So now we're here in a situation where... This inflation problem is a huge issue. And one thing I've really been thinking about in the last 24 hours, inflation's a problem, gas prices are high. And this is all coming just as people are going back to work. You heard Joe Biden say at the State of the Union two nights ago, get to work. It's time to bring federal 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 employees back to work. And on one hand, I absolutely understand that. You live in DC where, you know, the city doesn't have a lot of people going to work. It's empty. It's hard on the city. But People have also proven over the last two years, many people, that they can get the job done. They can work in different ways. And now we're going to ask people to go back to work, to get in the car and commute when gas prices are really high and getting a coffee, getting lunch is so expensive when what we should be doing is saying, you know what, if you're saving some money, that's a good thing. So it's complicated. This is a time when a lot of business leaders maybe need to rethink who is coming back to work? What does work look like? We convinced our, you know, the Jamie Diamonds of the world are of the mindset, work gets done if everybody's sitting at the conference table. And I don't entirely disagree with him. I certainly like to be with everyone, but this is still a complicated time, not just because of COVID. Maybe we should be reimagining work. For federal employees, if you're commuting an hour and a half to work, and we often say, how do you get people to take some of these jobs? How do you get uh, really smart accounting people to go work at the IRS where they're not going to make as much money as they would in the private sector. Well, if federal employees could work from home, that's a lot more attractive to a lot of people. Yeah. You work from yeah, home. But you there's also the, 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 yeah, I always have, but the political pressure to bring people back, you know, he's competing against Ron DeSantis or whoever. You know, this is also a political issue as well as anything else. I think he has to say COVID's over, yes. a, 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 ver, a democratic version of COVID. We're going to be safe. He said it in the State of the Union. But we also need employees to start saying, Mm -hmm. not, I need to stay home from work. I need to stay home from the office because of COVID. Now is the time where we can say to our employers, let's talk about optimizing my job, my performance, and is there a chance for me to work from home? But, But I fully understand how frustrating it is 
there, listen, there's all sorts of business leaders that you and I both talk to who say, I don't get it, right? Here in New York City, office buildings are empty, but our bars and restaurants are open. So there are a lot of, mm-hmm. of, of employers who aren't and buying full. the argument right. that people don't feel mm-hmm. safe. They don't feel safe enough to go to work when the Expedia CEO is expecting the biggest travel summer ever. You can't make the argument, I'm right. staying home because I don't feel safe. Um, but you could potentially make the argument. Well, now it's inflation. Now it's gas prices. But, you, but, now but guess cheaper. what? How about this is a time when businesses can talk to their best employees and say, what is it that you're looking what do for? You want? It might not just be compensation. Work from home should be viewed in a different way now. Let's get creative. But to just say, oh, it's not COVID safe. I'm not coming in. You, that's, gonna, but, that's a hard but argument. Interest rates, interest rates going up to deal with inflation. They have top to. Issue, they have to. They, there's they there's have no to. choice. Unfortunately, the people who are, when you look at polling, who are most worried about inflation, Cara, are wealthy people. And, and, and yeah. that, and, yeah. and, you know, one of the things that keeps prices very high is that people are willing to pay those prices. When people aren't willing to pay right. the high prices, there's pressure for them to go down. And right now, there, while there are a lot of people struggling economically, at the same time, there are lots of people who saved a lot in the last few years, and they're doing quite well. Yeah, and they're spending a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's get to our first big story. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is forcing big changes for companies in tech, media, and finance. Apple halted sales to Russia earlier this week and pulled apps of Russian state-sponsored media from its app store, although there's plenty of other Russian state-sponsored stuff that you don't see quite as clearly. But apps remain available to Russian users, however. Meanwhile, the Instagram users in Russia and Ukraine are, can now send encrypted uh, messages in the app. Meta says the change is part of its effort to keep users safe. Encrypted messaging is already available in WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger. Um, there's there's all kinds. YouTube is doing all kinds of things. Facebook, Google, um, Oracle pulled, stopped doing business there. Obviously, there's rumors that Microsoft is considering it, although they're trying to, I think, figure out what to do about its current uh, customers, its existing customers. Uh, they, I think most companies feel they probably aren't going to be doing business in Russia now for a while, um, but they have existing customers there uh, that they have to service. So what has to happen with that? Um Apple's stock is down since the invasion began. Uh, it's not Russia's business is estimated to be two point five billion dollars, but there's no physical store locations. It's certainly not as important as China or other places. So, how do you look at the tech response, which is sort of make finally making choices um, that they were unwilling to make in other areas? Well, this time, Kara, it truly is life or death. Civilians mm-hmm. are being murdered in Ukraine. Eight days ago, mm-hmm. across Ukraine, children were going to school. Now they're either in the crossfires in a war zone or they've fled their country, chances are with their mothers and not with their fathers or teenage brothers, right? When you really think about how grave this situation is and how much worse it can get, right? There is no reason to believe if Putin is successful in Ukraine, he's not going to push further, right? Mm -hmm. This is, so, so to see tech companies step in right now is huge, right? What's happening in Russia, those people are in an information vacuum. What Russia state-run media is shoving down their throats is beyond conspiracy theories. Just yesterday, there are some radio stations that shut down in Russia because they just can't bear to be pushing out the lies. I mean, the fact that Putin is telling people this is a denazification of Ukraine 
is just absolutely mm-hmm. insane. And well, although you know, I think I think a lot of the population doesn't believe it because, like for example, they shut down uh, uh, the independent news uh, organization TV Rain. Um, the site's editor in chief uh, says that he's now fled Russia. Uh, they notice these things. They depended on these stations too. There's been a few independent ones, mostly for entertainment and things like that, because most state-run media is decried by the that they make fun of it you know when you're in Russia that's what they do but 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 they but they're they're nonetheless they have an information deficit there as you said um when these things go away they notice that they notice that maybe the truth isn't there and a lot of this information is seeping through whether it's um all kinds of ways that people do manage to get information do you uh do, do you do you consider what the tech companies are doing to be a good thing is started throttling them off in terms of information? Absolutely. The tech com- I, I, I do think it's a good thing because the tech companies, you know, when it comes to Russia, have to deal with the government. The government controls everything. So it's not like Apple was the lifeline for the people there. And I do have an enormous amount of sympathy for Russians. I mean, they're experiencing economic warfare. And while Putin, who is a multi, multi-billionaire, doesn't mind being cut off, he is sending them on a road to North Korea. With every passing day, they are more isolated and their economy. And it's always important to remind people, Russia may be a nuclear superpower. They are an economic midget. Before this, they were the 11th largest economy. Okay. It's like the size of the state of New York. It's pathetic. And under Putin's rule, their economy has done nothing right? Their only exports are oil and gas and wheat, no other industries. That is pathetic. And now all of those Russian people are suffering yet again economically, and he's never cared, right? The oligarchs are richer than beyond belief, as is Putin. He's never cared about his own people suffering. The question will be, will this get so bad that he could get removed from office? And I don't think there's ever been a time that, that he's been in power, that people have thought about that credibly. And you wonder Credibly. if we're if the West is successful at sanctioning oligarchs, and even though we're talking about it and we're doing it, I still don't believe it because mm-hmm. you know better than I do. Mm-hmm. If there's one thing that yeah, mega rich people protect- know how to do, it's find loopholes. Is get protected. Yeah. And if those oligarchs really start to get punished, you wonder if they will turn on Putin. Because guess what? None of them live in Russia. They live in London. They live in the south of France. They live in New York. They don't Mm -hmm. have his delusions of grandeur about Russia being a superpower. Um, They're just his boys. He's been theirs. And he's enabled them to become obscenely wealthy. But if that changes, they could turn on him. They could. Now, the online investigators are still tracking private jets and yachts of Russian oligarchs. That's become a problem for Credit Suisse. The bank asked investors this week to destroy documents showing its uh, financial relationship with sanctioned Russian tycoons, specifically their yacht and plane loans. Credit Suisse said the private documents were leaked to the media. Um, what, what were they thinking, this this leaked documents, um, this Swiss secrets, I guess? Okay, well, I just say pathetic to Credit Suisse. I worked at Credit Suisse for six years of my life, and they're panicked right now because Credit Suisse years ago was a major global investment bank. Now they're not. If you go to their website right now, it basically says private wealth management with a kick of investment banking on the side. So they desperately need to keep all of those private, well, all of those private banking clients. Right now, it is all about being a private Swiss bank. So they don't want any of that information to get out. And the fact that they want it kept secret 
just shows how self-serving they are. And I would go one step further. If you look at the last few years, it's even from the financial crisis, how well banks have done, how well bank stocks have done. Credit Suisse's stock has sucked. And this speaks to the culture of a company. If this is how you operate, you can see a through line and say, wow, well, Jamie Dimon, who runs a completely different type of bank, has had much stronger stock performance. And here's a great example why. Mm-hmm. That they're not in bed with these people. So one of the things that's interesting is sort of squeezing uh, Russia informationally. Um, we can get to the U- what Ukraine is doing, which is very canny. It doesn't mean it means anything because, you know, it's one thing to win the social media meme war, and it's another to have a tank roll into your city and mm-hmm. bomb all the apartment buildings. It's a really interesting juxtaposition. In some ways, it's a very good thing that they're winning this this war, especially this cyber war, I guess, or or social media war. But does it mean anything from your perspective? Does it actually matter? You know, that remains to be seen. And while um, we're all standing here saying, I stand with Ukraine and it's amazing to watch Mm -hmm. these civilians fight for their country, we're saying that from the comfort of our homes, Right. The right. president is literally like it's a narrative, like it's a movie in a like bunker. A movie the president, you're right. Zelensky is in a bunker right now with a helmet on and he's, you know, public enemy number one. We're, you know, thousands of people are losing their lives. And when you look at those videos of women and children leaving and saying goodbye to their sons and I mean, Tara, both of you, if, if you were Ukrainian, no. yep. you would be leaving your sons there. Mm hmm. And so I think, you know, we're, we sit here and we're like, we're so inspired by Ukraine. It's so amazing what they're doing. I don't think we're appreciating what they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. We'd rather do memes. And another thing, what, by the way, American companies putting pressure on, which I think most of us support, um, they did not put out, do they have to do it in every international conflict to come? They, they are facing criticism for doing this in Ukraine and not in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. You're seeing a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are making choices, and it's interesting, the choices they're making. Um, I You know, people think it has to do with race mm-hmm. and uh, color and stuff like that. So it also brings to those issues to, to mind. Well, they wouldn't have to make those choices if we had more regulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yep. That's a fair point. If if we had more government regulation about how these businesses operate around information in the way that, let's say, traditional media companies like the one I work at does, then they wouldn't have to make these Mm -hmm. choices. I actually think it would be easier for them to conduct business. Right. Well, they also you have certain standards and rules uh, at where you are versus other places. One interesting thing is they're also cutting off entertainment to Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, no which Batman. Which is an interesting thing. Russian Batman, which is not maybe a favor. It's getting terrible reviews. Um, Warner Brothers is postponing the release of B- the Batman in Russia. Disney and Sony will pause their upcoming release schedule in Russia as well. Again, it's not a huge market for Hollywood, so it's not it's not the biggest flex, I suppose, but the studio needs all the ticket sales it can get. Do you think uh, taking this hit is, is a good thing? Yes. Or just a meaningless gesture? Um, whether or not it's meaningless, we should be doing absolutely nothing right now to serve Russia. Nothing. Mm-hmm. So just pull them, mm-hmm. pull, the, pull the plug on. But I, listen, things. I understand Every- what you're saying, that when you make moves like this, it's a slippery slope. Because what about when the next conflict mm-hmm. comes and the next conflict? But yeah. Guess what? That's what the boys in the C-suite and women have to figure out. Not our problem. It's theirs. Yeah. Okay. Stephanie, we're going to have a quick break. When we come back, the law comes for TikTok. And we'll speak with friend of Pivot, Gall Beckerman. 
This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Okay, Stephanie, we're back with our second big story. States attorneys general around the country are investigating TikTok's effect on young users. This is not a new thing. Facebook already faced this around Instagram. The inquiry looks on how TikTok may have tried to keep young users hooked on the app. It's a very hooky app. Another coalition of state AGs made a similar case against Facebook last year, and Facebook is still under the microscope. President Biden brought Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen. I was sort of surprised to the State of the Union address earlier this week. I was like, what? Like when, when that popped up. Um, Here's how the moment played out. Children were also struggling before the pandemic, bullying, violence, trauma, and the harms of social media. As Frances Haugen, who is here tonight with us, has shown, we must hold social media platforms accountable for the national experiment they're conducting on our children for profit. Wow. All right. That's just a big thing with politicians, even though there's been some pushback that maybe we don't have enough research yet. I think there should be plenty. There should be more research and transparency uh, to understand the causal relationship here and the correlation. So state's attorney general's case against Facebook still had trouble from the start, although it's a good political thing to pull out. Um, the case against Facebook involved the acquisition of its WhatsApp and Instagram and things like that. But this this issue around teen girls and such uh, is an important one. It's added with TikTok is owned by a Chinese company, and there are some worries about uh, that. Um, so, what what do you think about this? I got to be honest. Like you said, you you were surprised to see Francis. I'm frustrated by it. It's a political show. Our lawmakers have done absolutely nothing from a regulatory front to curb these businesses and protect our children. And great, let's parade Francis in there. Well, you know who's standing outside the building? The scores of high-paid lobbyists that work for these same companies that are shimmying up to these lawmakers, and it's working. So I just don't buy, oh, great, Francis is there. Call me when you actually do something. We haven't, and our children are suffering for it. Do you, you know, there wasn't this New York Times piece talking about whether this really does have an effect because we don't have enough proof. It wasn't saying it didn't. It said there isn't enough proof that we have it. What do you think has to happen? I think, you know, there's been some legislation proposed to to require transparency to outside researchers, et cetera, to get this information. Um, there is a worrisome issue around TikTok uh, collecting all this information on young people. Um, why go for this thing? right here versus some other more serious issues around tech companies, do you think? Because there must be details around this one that make it gettable, 
right? I think that they're going for this thing for honestly, like technical reasons that are are not very sexy at all. But the issue is there's not enough outside conclusive research. There's They're not actually breaking any current laws, rules, or regulations. But we know that um, these attorney generals would like to do something. And so I think there, there must be some level of technicality where they think they have a decent shot. And for the average person, this is so frustrating, right? Just this, right. right? And, and they're saying, how on earth can nothing be done over this? Imagine what this is like for parents who have kids that are suffering, who have kids that they've lost, yet nothing happens. And these businesses just get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's devastating. Is an issue you have with your kids? My kids are not very on those things. You know they what, said, both I of them are like, it makes think, me feel bad. Why should I do it? Um, the issue for me is, right, so my kids are 8, uh, 13, and 15. The issue for me is that we're really strict in our house about devices. And the the problem on the other side of that, you know, it, it, it kind of makes your kid an isolated pilgrim. And that's hard too, right? Because <laughs> pilgrim, yeah, well, you know what I mean. Like kids, kids aren't talking on the phone. Like no. this is how this yeah. is what their world is. This is yeah. how they communicate. Um, and I have a 15 year old, and as soon as he's on Snapchat, the world ends because he gets himself in trouble. And uh, do, do I do I blame these teenagers? No, they're impulsive. If everything you and I did when we were 15, 16, 17 was recorded, oh my gosh! Yeah. I, I mean, disaster yeah, I, city. So I our texts are bad. Our text exactly. group is bad. I, I, I mean, you know, we have a gosh, Kara and I are on a very, very exciting text chain. Um, and so yeah. I feel sympathy of what we're expect. We're expecting our kids to have self control that we certainly didn't have. Um, no, it's it. Trust me, it is definitely a problem in my house. Um, I'm most worried. I, I have an eight year old daughter who I'm on her like a hawk. When you see what they have access to, it's just crazy. When I see mm-hmm, my son, mm-hmm. who's 15, and so this works from a- the girls who he, he talks to what they're wearing, how they're behaving. And it's so hard for parents to even keep up with it. No, it's, it's terrible. I mean, it's a huge problem. Should you age gate these things? So Scott has talked about age gating. Are you a proponent of that? Like, this is one thing that could come of this, this idea of age gating all of these things. You, you age gate liquor, you age gate cigarettes, you age gate the military, et cetera. Yeah. And it's complete bullshit when companies like Instagram say, well, you can't have an Instagram account if you're under 13. Like really, I invite anyone who works at Instagram to come sit next to me and I'm going to show you puppies, chimpanzees, and babies who have their own Instagram pages. And I assure you <laughs> when they're having meetings with consumer brands and advertisers, they're not yeah. saying, oh, we don't have any eyeballs under the age of 13. That would be a big fat lie. Absolutely age-gated. They do not have the impulse control. When I just think about how sad I was as a girl in the sixth grade or the seventh grade or the eighth grade, you know, in fear of missing out or, or girls being mean to each other or, you know, not getting invited to things. And all I was doing was yeah. thinking about where other girls could be on a Friday night. Now you're watching it endlessly. Yeah. And you didn't have your white vinyl outfit then no. at the time. So, you know, you know, you couldn't, you didn't have your TV show in white vinyl I didn't. Outfit. I did but, have a but, white leather th- fringe jacket that I wore for years. Oh, yes. dear. 
Yeah, that's that's precisely why you are sitting at home. Um, so one of the so when you think about, it, is there any that's worse than the other? Do you feel like it's Instagram or TikTok or I just see I have a burner phone that I use TikTok on because I'm quite worried about the Chinese government and it is connected to nothing but public Wi-Fi. That's just like it doesn't connect it to anything I that is my information. And I watch a lot of air fryer, Insta, I mean TikTok. You do? That's it. It's air fryers. Yeah, that's what comes up. I just like air fryer. I just had the fire department show up at my house this week because of a slight air fryer incident, to be totally honest. Um, I don't use the only TikToks I see are through our friend Brooke Hammerling, who basically I think she just looks at TikTok all day long and finds the best ones. So that's how I see it. I don't use TikTok uh, because I think I would get sucked into it. Um, But it worries me very, very much. Right. When when my son, who's 15, when all of a sudden he comes downstairs with these like crazy, crazy, ridiculous conspiracy theories that are often about young Mm -hmm. men or tied to politics. All I have to do is walk upstairs and see where YouTube or TikTok took him and took him, took him. Yep. And that is different. That that is wildly different from when I was a teenager, babysitting at people's houses, hoping they had HBO or Skinamax so I could watch you know, rated R movies Skinamax. that I wasn't allowed to watch at home. Um, right? Skinamax. I haven't heard that word in a long time. Watching Gilbert Gottfried up all night on Saturday night is just nudity, yeah. right? What my, what our kids are watching, how dangerous it is yeah. when you go down a TikTok path is significantly worse than it me wanting indeed. to babysit for rich people that had pay cable. Yeah, my kids stay on John Oliver. That's where they stay. It's oh, not, you know what? You're a show there. off. You are a show off. We all am, wish, but that. they do. You that's know what? what happens. That, Our that's sons, exact. they just watch John Oliver. As I'm borderline admitting, <laughs> they do. like I think my son is following alt right influencers. <laughs> Claire watches Encanto on a full loop that goes on and on and on. It's a very good movie. It is. After this point, it's not. Last question: Facebook stock. We're going to have a, a goal, uh, Beckerman, and on a second to talk about some of these these kinds of issues. Facebook stock has been in the dumps lately. It's still in the dumps. What do you, what do you make of that? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Don't cry for me, Argentina. Um, okay. Facebook will find its way again. <laughs> I have no, I, I have no sympathy for Facebook. I have no sympathy for, uh, Facebook shareholders. Um, what do I think about Facebook? I think Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg should sit down no. with you and I for an interview. Yeah, they're not going to do that. And I think it's so tiresome to watch Cheryl do her Instagram videos of here's Cheryl Sandberg talking to a small business and how excited she is. Give me a break. Yeah. Two of the most influential <laughs> people in the business planet. Why don't you sit down and have um, have an have an unregulated conversation about your real business? Until that, they're not yeah, getting they're not any more of that. our breath. They're not going to do that. My uh, Jim Bankoff ran into some of them, and they 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 were complaining about how mean I was. Anyway, their stock is down forty four percent, forty five percent. What do you think about the it? Past six months. So I don't know if it's going to recover. You know, they always recover. They're the only game in town from an advertising point of view. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a feeling about them that's not good, and I think Instagram is losing a little steam to TikTok. But they, their only hope is that TikTok is revealed to be you know, controlled by the Chinese Communist Party definitively, or if the Biden administration does something. Well, if that's your only Um, business strategy, you need a better one. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think their level of innovation, I think the spending on the metaverse is problematic, et cetera. But we'll see where they go. But uh, but they are certainly trying to do the right thing in this case. And we'll see. um, I think you see the, the influence of Nick Clegg here from an international perspective. But do you really believe they're in any sort of trouble? You and I might say, well, we don't use Facebook. 
but mm, yes, millions yes, of other I do. people I think do. I, I do that. I do. But I think, I think eventually all these companies die. Like, I, I think they, no matter how big they are, um, or they morph into something else like Microsoft did. And we'll see on sure, that. Sure. But you know, as Microsoft you're saying morphed. that, I'm sure my sister is Facebooking whatever she ate for breakfast this morning. <laughs> okay. While saying that you, she doesn't like you Facebook. And that <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So anyway, we'll see what happens. But now we're going to bring in our friend of Pivot. Gall Beckerman is a senior editor for books at The Atlantic and the author of The Quiet Before on the Unexpected Origins of Radical Ideas. He joins us to discuss the way social media complicates and maybe inhibits any movement for social justice. Welcome, Gall. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming. So we were just talking about what was happening in the in Ukraine with their use of social media right. and platforms to get out their ideas. I guess I sort of want to start there. Like we, this is a book that talks about, you know, so the history of this thing going mm-hmm. way, way back. Orators in Victorian Britain, futuristic, as the Times noted, futuristic manifesto shouters in a Florence theater in 1913, the evening concluding with a light bulb smashing against the side of, is it Filippo Martin? Martinetti's face right. as he tried to read out a political statement. This is not a new thing, the ability to scream and shout. It's just amplified and weaponized in some cases. So let's start with Ukraine. What is your what what, what do you imagine in the through the lens of this book mm-hmm. you're seeing there? Well, what I tried to do in the book is look at the various modes that social movements and and people who try to make revolution in their societies, uh, what modes of communication they have at their disposal, right? So and and the criticism I have of the last 10, 15 years is that we've sort of over-relied on social media, uh, that that the loud sort of bullhorn that Twitter or Facebook provides has has made it so that that activists, dissidents, people who are, you know, aching to make change don't recognize the smaller, quieter spaces where they probably should be first communicating and strategizing. As for this moment, what I'd say is that it is one of those rare instances where uh, activists really need the bullhorn. They need to be able to draw attention to what's happening, especially considering the disinformation that's going on in Russia at the moment. Most Russian people don't really understand at all what's happening in Ukraine. They think there's some sort of minor conflagration in the East and not uh, a full-scale invasion. And so uh, if a Twitter or a Facebook could be extremely helpful in getting out a narrative at, at this moment rather than these quiet spaces. Can you explain this idea of the quiet spaces? Because social movements like Me Too and Black Lives Matter have been fairly successful. Mm-hmm. So have right-wing efforts to, right. to sort of amplify and, and anger people, election lies, right. anti-vax and stuff like that. Very loud, mm-hmm. very bullhorn. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about the that versus the quieter organizational right. places because nothing's quiet these days. Nothing is quiet and and. It's not just that nothing is quiet, but that these movements, that the way they set their expectations, sort of how they understand change actually works, has been really molded by the metabolism of social media. So the thought is that, you know, all we need to do is gain this moment of visibility, this moment of attention, this sort of sugar high of everyone turning towards our way and our slogan, and it's done. And the reality is, is we've seen sort of over and over again, and I sort of track the beginnings of this to the to the quote unquote Twitter revolutions in the early 2010s and in the Arab Spring in particular, uh, what we've seen is that they do get these moments of attention, visibility. There's even, you know, 
moments where the conversation changes at a societal level. And undoubtedly, that's important, especially when we're talking about the kind of progressive causes that we might all be on board on here. But but then they just kind of fade away and they don't know how to translate that into the on the ground organizing and sort of, uh, you know, moving laws uh, in their direction, kind of the actual real concrete, tangible changes that that are in many cases the ultimate goals of these movements, but that sort of get swept away by by the by the hugeness of you know of that bullhorn. What about? I mean, while it's extraordinary to see right some of these amazing social movements that represent really important causes, the fact that they're able to mobilize and get these platforms and these megaphones are inspirational. But are we forgetting that on the other side of the coin? Caro's mentioning it, um, forces for evil, anti-vaxxers, um, just just conspiracy theorists are able to use these same platforms, right? When you said, listen, mm-hmm. it's great for, you know, for, for people who are living in Russia. So they can actually, if you can use a, a Twitter, a Facebook and actually see what's going on there, that's assuming the videos that are on those platforms haven't been altered, right? Because there's no right. standards on these platforms, you think, oh, we're going to bring this to the people so they can see the truth. But Who's mm-hmm. deciding what the truth is? There's no rules. Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's one of the challenges of that sort of public sphere where it's 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 so loud and so viral and so much about grabbing attention too. I mean, we know that that these are the sort of incentive models on, on those platforms. And, and I think that the problem is, is that, you know, some of the, some of the movements that we that we look at today and we think about the kind of antisocial and terrible ways that they're affecting society they actually have had some of that quiet space and the reason is is that they've been sort of pushed down there right so so what is that? What i, I do you have mean? a chapter so i have a i have a chapter on the white supremacists uh, who sort of built up to charlottesville and i was able to gain access to their chats sort of in the 3 or 4 months leading up to charlottesville they were on discord you know the, the the gaming app because it was an extremely useful place for them to be. It, it, they it was private. Uh, they had their own moderators controlling their little chat rooms. Uh, they could kick out anybody who wasn't sort of on board with what they were talking about. And what I was able to observe there, once I got past sort of the disgustingness of just even spending that much time <laughs> in their presence, was was people really incubating. Uh, a certain set of ideas. They were hashing things out. They were they were working as a movement uh, towards making the kind of change they wanted to make in the world and consolidating their visions, figuring out, hammering out ideology, uh, deciding optics. Optics was a huge thing for them. You know, they, they want to recruit more people to their worldview. How are they going to do that? You know, what should they be wearing? Literally, what should they be wearing and what should they not be wearing? Um, all of those questions had a space to really be discussed and worked out. And one of my worries is that because the the bullhorn is so attractive, that the movements that are allowed to kind of flourish there, take a Black Lives Matter, you know, or a Me Too, don't give themselves that space. They, and in fact, we've kind of vilified those small, quiet spaces. You know, uh, we call them, you know, derisively safe spaces, right? And 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 I and my argument is that there is a definite role for them in the building and 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 development of of a movement. It, but, but it's interesting because, you know, so if not Facebook and Twitter, what does good communication look like in a successful social movement? I'm thinking, 
you know, you're talking, you know, Reddit used to be a place for that, a quieter right. place, although it was a public place. Right. Um, these groups are, there's all these new conservative social networks right. where they're all talking. They're not doing very well because mm-hmm. they're talking to each other and they don't like, you know, they want to yell at liberals or they right. want to be right. engaged right. with, you know, so much is done out in the open these days versus mm-hmm. uh, sort of in plain sight. Um, wh- what do you consider a good communication looks like in a social media movement is using both doing doing that hashtag abism is it hashtag abism um or is it is it these you know because nobody's been meeting each other physically for a while now well first of all i think you do need to use both i wouldn't deny that there is an absolute role for the bullhorn and i wouldn't want to take that away from people who you know have have now the ability to reach uh, at a scale and a speed you know that was never possible before so let's put that aside but then i think you also need a place for real conversation and i think it's not hard to kind of take the conditions that social media has imposed on our own personal life our personal interactions and even look at democracy and the effects that it's had on democracy and understand how those could apply to social movements in a negative way and the antidote to that is to say uh, we need to be able to have a place to communicate with different incentive structures, right? So if you just take away the like button or the upvote or the sort of uh, th- this mode of communication that privileges uh, the the bombastic or the shouting, um, you immediately enter a space like this discord room for these white supremacists where they're not just trying to get attention, but they're actually trying to continue a conversation. To organize. They're, they're trying to, to organize. organize and they're sort of, you know, even even if you look at how a conversation develops, you know, without the like button, you know, when it's, it, the, the incentive is not, let me say the thing that's going to, to draw everyone's attention in my direction, but it's let me say the thing that's going to keep the conversation going, that's gonna say, that's a good point, Did have we thought about this? Or I know you're saying this, but I think this. You know, that sort of flow uh, is just not, there's no, there's, those platforms weren't built for that. I mean, they were not, they, they, they don't really serve those ends. And- well, it's a little like the QAnon thing, right? I right. mean, because QAnon was, is this little club that right. everybody is in, yeah. that they're by yeah. themselves. Yeah. And no, no one was aware of it for a long time. And then everyone lost their mind, their right. ever-loving minds right. that they right. were talking about these right. things. I mean, in a way you could say that what I'm arguing is that the, 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 what has incubated these kind of, the same uh, conditions that have incubated the, a, a movement like, QAnon could be a wonderful thing for a kind of pro-social movement uh, of, say, you know, activists trying to figure out a different way to confront climate change, let's say. You know, do they have those spaces where they're just sort of, you know, in a small, heated, intense, intimate environment where they're talking amongst themselves as opposed to kind of shouting out to the world? Can I ask, what was it like for you to spend those weeks or months in that chat room, in that space with white supremacists, what 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 was that like? Uh, it's pretty. It's pretty. I say it's a combination of horrible and kind of slightly amusing, if I'm honest with myself, because like they're so embedded in their worldview, they're that even just mm-hmm. like the jokes they make, the way they talk to to one another. Um, it's just so it's like they're living on another planet, you know, and which is which is the value of it too, right? Because they're able to sort of feel that they're reinforcing one another's ideas that that they act those ideas actually have power. Um, I say as a as somebody who's Jewish, it was particularly 
disgusting because you know they they are obsessed obsessed with Jews and the role that they feel Jews have in a kind of nefarious way in affecting all levels of society. In some ways, it was more not new, not new, but yeah, not new, enduring. but not new, but to actually be like, ah, oh, who should we throw to the guy into the gas chamber first? You know, like to see them kind of make these jokes in such a flippant way. It, it, in, in some ways, it felt more anti-Semitic than overtly racist, bizarrely, you know, because they think the Jews are really behind even, you know, things like immigration, things like, you know, uh, helping, uh, you know, m- minorities in all levels of society. You know, they, 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 it's the one sort of evil that they imagine. And so, uh, but, Cara, kind of witnessing not that new, in real time. But I guess I ask because how jarring it must be to actually hear it. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that was interesting to me about seeing, you know, we we sort of associate uh, the what, that sort of online white supremacy with a kind of, that their mode of communication is sort of snarky and always like, you know, memes and, you know, just, but they actually, there was a level of sort of earnestness, you know, if you Right. Took a, and took, intimacy. Yeah, and intimacy. Intimacy. Yeah. Right. If you took like three steps yeah. or many, many more steps than that away from the actual content of what they were talking about, they were like, hey, fam. You know, they would refer to each other as family or like, you know, right. they would, you know, I remember there was one exchange that kind of, again, made me laugh and was disgusted at the same time about a guy who, a guy came, comes in and says that he, he went on a date with a woman who he found out is half Jewish. And everyone is like, like consoling him and sort of you know, <laughs> saying it's okay, man. You know, it's it was almost like a kind of a locker room uh, kind of thing, you know. And um, and I was just struck by the almost like the level of vulnerability that they allowed mm-hmm. themselves well, in that well, space. Well, you know, here, here's a question I have. One of the things when when I was covering the early internet, one of the great things was for people that were that were like minded or had like minded like hobbies. Uh, finding each other. Yeah. That, you, that never, whether it was gay people, mm-hmm. you know, who never could, who were separated and disparate. Mm-hmm. Um, or I remember a time when all these quilters came together at AOL and they made a quilt yeah. online for Steve Case. And it was really quite moving in terms of people not finding each other across chasms of time and space, essentially. Then that, what really happened, though, is the right wing took over this. I, I interviewed Ralph Reed very early. They were using online spaces like this mm-hmm. to find each other because they were zeroed out of regular media. They were zeroed out of, you know, take te- newspapers and mm-hmm. television. before. This is pre-Fox News. And what was interesting to me is that they could find connection. And the connections they found were neg- were were like white supremacists or right-wing things. And they do very well in these spaces yeah. uh, because they need that feeling of community and connection and they're being attacked. So I would ask you what I think of when you, when you have these, one of the great things about the internet is millions of connections mm-hmm. that get, mm-hmm. get made every day. It's astonishing. And people uh, can be thoughtful or they can be thoughtless or whatever they want to be, but it does create, it, it is a perfect place for, for people who are disgruntled to gather. Mm-hmm. And you see this, you know, you have, you know, Gavin McInnes, Richard Spencer, et cetera, who you see physically, but there's many more spaces that are either anti-vax or election lies, or it tends to go towards the aggrieved more than mm-hmm. the let's all get together and talk about air fryers, which again is my biggest interest these days. Why is it? Why um, are you so into air fryers? Why are you so into air fryers? They're cool. They are. Just don't even speak to me about it. They're cool. They please me. They please me on every, I don't know why. I, I'm not going to explain it to you. It's one of my passions. Anyway. That, I, I like an air fryer. I look for air fryer recipes, but it's definitely not my go-to. Okay. 
<laughs> Gall doesn't care about any of this. What I'm wondering is, you don't know, why he does might. it tend towards the negative? <laughs> he might. Why does it tend toward the negative and yeah. not the enjoyment of air fryers, for example? And it does to an extent, well, by the way. It does. So I, I'm actually, I'm really interested in this question of sort of what the internet was for and, and sort of, and how things got skewed in it different direction. Nice. It was nice. It was nice. I, I actually have, I have a chapter it in the book nice. um, that's sort of, you know, about cyberspace, as we called it back then. Um, and I focused on on the well, which I'm sure you, I, mm-hmm. I feel the like you must be familiar with. But the well was like pre-internet, you know, in the 80s. It was this group of a few thousand people, I think, you know, mostly in the Bay Area. And it was truly the first sort of online community. You know, there, there had been sort of uh, message boards beforehand for very, you know, kind of geeky uh, Star Star Trek uh, message boards. You know, but this was like a really interesting bunch of intelligent people all communicating in this new disembodied way. And, and, and what was interesting about it is, you know, the people who ran the well... Uh, were were hippies. I mean, they were people who had all lived on communes in the 70s, and they felt they were bringing to this community a knowledge of what it means to sort of to create community and how you, you know, what guardrails you need to have up to keep things productive, you know, how you kind of pull people aside and say, look, you know, things are getting intense here. Let's kind of cool down. And they did all of that. You know, they, they really. It was also about how they lived. It was out of the whole earth catalog, right? Totally. It was about, yeah, you know, yeah. build your own tire home, that kind yeah, of stuff. They, they believed in the power of tools, you know, they so they had this kind of, so what was interesting to me in kind of delving into the well was that there was this idealism that emerged from the well, right? That 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 the internet could be this place that had all of these private spaces where people of common interest could come together. But the thing, and you know, Silicon Valley has picked up that ideology and that romanticism in a big way, right? We still sort of, you know, if you listen to Mark Zuckerberg, he still talks about, you know, what he no, produces he as being a place to make connections and a place to, yeah. but the part that got lost, that got kind of forgotten was, like day two, they had a troll, you know, like they, they had, they needed bouncers in cyberspace, you know, they, and they understood this. Uh, and that element of it, then the need for a kind of um, structure to make sure that the conversation that was going to happen, these spaces that were going to exist for people actually proved to be uh, creative and productive for them. That part of it sort of got got lost somewhere along the kind of capitalist route towards creating bigger and bigger platforms that were going to keep people on for longer and longer. Um, and so so I do think that that sort of seed is still there, what you're talking about, this place where, you know, we, it, the, the time and space doesn't exist. You can sort of connect with people in new and interesting ways. I think it's just right now we've lost a bit of self-awareness about where that can happen. You know, th- and I think right. that's that's the interjection. The metaverse. <laughs> so what's your takeaway at the end of all this? My takeaway is that um, we, that, you know, I'm my book is focused, you know, on how kind of new ideas enter into the world. And, and the fact that the public sphere that we, you know, inhabit today is one that is not particularly good for, generating those new ideas. It's not twitchy and reductive, twitchy and reductive. And we know this, this is not new. You know, we know this in almost every other realm of our life. We know this, right? We've, uh, even in the time that I've been working on this book, I feel like there's been such a more growing awareness of how, how it's affecting us, how it's affecting my kids. But yet when it comes to the building of movements, 
you know, to change happening, social and political change happening in the world. I think we still hold on to this kind of romantic idea that all you need is a hashtag to go viral and like everything will change. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm being a little flip, but I do think a lot of people kind of still have that sense of it. And what I would like people to do to the extent that I have any recommendations <laughs> for coming out of this book, because it's essentially a book of stories that I hope people will sort of learn from, but is is that there are other modes of, of communicating and that we should look for them. And it's not that we can't find them online, but we need to maybe stop vilifying the kind of value of seclusion a little bit, you know, and understand yeah. that that's we need important connective too. tissue. Exactly. And we need connective tissue. It can't be through a TikTok dance video. Yep. We've said anyway. All right, Gal, thank you so much. It's a terrific book. I love all the historical stuff. And I indeed was using the well and it was quite a place, I have to say. It was irritating too on some I'm level. I'm sure it was. <laughs> it was, but it was in a good way. You sort of, you know, it was... It was a different time and a different place yeah. in terms of what the internet would become, and it did not become that. Yeah. The, 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 it became a capitalist engine yeah. of, of, of financial growth. Anyway, Gaul, I, we recommend, I recommend you reading this book. It's called uh, The Quiet Before on Unexpected Origins of Radical Ideas. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, Stephanie, aside from insulting my air fryer love, one more quick break. We'll be back for predictions. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. Support for this show comes from the Harvard Business Review. You know, there's this idea in business that some people are born to be leaders. You either have it or you don't. But leadership, like any skill, can and should be learned over time. Whether you've climbed to the top of the corporate ladder or are just starting out, you'll find valuable insights at Harvard Business Review. Harvard Business Review is a leading destination for smart management thinking. And on their website, hbr.org, subscriptions are just $10 a month, which gives you unlimited access to the same level of expertise. Things like case studies, newsletters, podcasts, articles written by some of the world's top minds. I use HBR in my research when I do articles or when I'm thinking about what to talk about on Pivot. I find them really interesting. I find them complete. I find them different. And you can find all kinds of industries covered. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. What a bargain. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code PIVOT right now to get 10% off your subscription. Again, save 10% off your HBR subscription. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code PIVOT. Okay, Stephanie, predictions. Here's a prediction. Kanye West is now um, putting up a, a new music video where he decapitates and buries Pete Davidson, who is apparently dating his now ex-wife. Um, oh, do you say apparently because you want us to act like you no. don't pay attention? They are dating. <laughs> they are dating. Yeah. I don't know. I never know if it's real. Yeah, I don't know are. if J-Lo they and are. Ben are going. I don't. Okay, F thank you. I'm glad you're friends with them. But in any case, I don't know. Uh, God save me from the crash just so I can beat Pete Davidson's ass is his uh, is his lyric. He's been harassing him online for weeks now. I feel like a restraining order is coming. That's my prediction. A restraining order. So, wow. 
It's just appalling what he's doing. I'm sorry. It's It's appalling. It's It's glib. But, you know, we look at it like it's, oh, it's entertainment. What they're experiencing is absolute harassment. And it's Mm -hmm. a restraining order should be coming. Uh, I would say my. But the problem is he has lesions of followers, just like Elon Musk does. And when they unleash this, it's a real issue. That is 100 percent true. Uh, My prediction Uh, things are going to get worse in Ukraine, much worse before they get better. And while it's amazing and inspirational to look at all of these everyday citizens now, you know, fighting to defend their country, um, they're going Mm -hmm. to get exhausted. And we don't know what, and I don't mean nuclear power, but I just mean firepower, manpower, what, what, um, Putin has, right. You've got people putting their lives on the line in Ukraine. And I'm, I'm, I'm I'm very worried and concerned about how much worse it's going to get. And from mm-hmm. a, a my positive, um, I'm happy to see. Is there a better? You said before it gets better. What's better? I mean, before this, this thing, right? So changed. people are saying, listen, Putin's humiliated right now. You know, he's backed into a corner. You're right. He's humiliated and backed into a corner. So what does an irrational animal do? Double down and get worse. No, there's often mm-hmm. these thoughts like, listen, Putin's on his own. He's screwed. I, I, I think even if he is on his own and screwed, he will do horrible, heinous, ridiculous things that will cost innocent people their lives. Um, it's a little, it's a little, you know, Trump, same way. Like a lot of the stuff that's coming out just today, um, he's still here, still here. Yes, making trouble. but, but um, I, I, I'm using the word brave, but I don't mean to. Brave isn't the word. It's It's like Trump. Putin is like Trump in the way he conducts himself, but he's, um, far more fearless than Trump. Trump wouldn't actually do physical harm. I think Trump is more well, cowardly than Putin is. Yeah, that's a very good... He, this guy is brutal. Brutal, brutal yes. Is brutal. I think the word you're looking for. Um, but, Absolutely. you know, this whole well, idea, right? People are saying, well, you know, the January 6th committee now thinks Trump um, may be liable, criminal. you know, may be a criminal. Listen, that would be great if that's the case. Like, wake me up when that happens. This is a guy who doesn't use email, doesn't use text. He rolls like a mob boss who never, ever, ever puts his fingerprints on anything. So I'm hard pressed to believe that they're going to get him when they do. Great. Um, my win. Uh, I'm really happy for kid for school kids that so many across the country mm-hmm. are going to get to play sports and go to school without masks on in a week. But I am sad for people like your family who get easily forgotten, who have kids under the age of five, right? People like mine who are celebrating yep. going, oh my gosh, my family's about to have the biggest win. My sons cannot wait to play basketball with no mask and my daughter and go to school smiling. Win for us. We're forgetting what a dangerous loss it is for families like yours. That's what I'm and, worried about. And immunocompromised. I'm more concerned with immunocompromised people. I was, they just taken masks off in DC and I was in a store and someone was clearly immunocompromised. And you know, I put my mask right on, and I because she, this woman was wearing a mask, and there, you've got to be aware of kids. And I know you're sick of COVID. I know you're sick of masks. Most of the lecturing about kids and masks comes from people that don't have kids. Um, but, um, but it, which is like, I don't think. Did you see Ron DeSantis yesterday? Ron DeSantis I know, was that, a, he was kind of joking with them. No, I thought he wasn't. that was taken Watch out of context. Wasn't yesterday All right, I, at an indoor event. I saw Remember, people who are arguing against masks aren't saying that masks mm-hmm. are dangerous. They're saying it's freedom of choice. The government shouldn't tell you you mm-hmm. have to wear a mask. You have to vaccinate. Yeah. And he yeah, walks in and screams at teenage boys 
to take their masks off. And then he proceeds to say, I can't believe these Ukrainians are out there fighting. That's so weird. You wouldn't see that happen in France, which is so, yeah, I know. it's a reminder that so many of these yeah, lawmakers are Yale. so that guy He went, went to Yale yeah, undergrad, he went to Yale Harvard Law and, School. He, yeah, he knows, knows what, what happened in France in World War yeah. II. The sick thing is, is that he's banking on the fact that you and I don't. And that's what's gross. Yes, yes. Yeah, he's a smarter Trump in a lot of ways. Um, what's really interesting about that is, I, you know, it's true. A lot of these people who don't want to wear masks, they certainly have been very aggressive in telling people not to wear masks. But that's the thing. What business is it of anybody else's? Nobody's business. We're lucky to have these vaccines to allow us to move through this. But I'll tell you, let people do what they want and have their degree of comfort and stop stop it. You've already been assholes on one side. You don't need to do it on, on the other. How about be kind, full stop? Be kind. That's a very, be kind to Stephanie and Kara. Okay. We'll take a listener question in our next episode. What do you want us to know? Go to nymag.com slash pivot to submit your question for us or call 855-551-PIVOT. The link is in our show notes. Okay, Stephanie, that's the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I know you're busy and tired. This has been a tough, it's not a tough week, but you've had like a big crash course in anchoring, I think. Yes, Although you've experienced tired, anchor. You know, women, every time a woman, every time we have another child, we gain a superpower that our human bodies I, don't require sleep. We're just smiling zombies. Then I am Captain Marvel in that case, but I, your show is terrific. We watch it every night. Sadly, the golden child who did like watching your show in the morning cannot watch it now because uh, she is asleep. Well, she may start waking up at 11 p.m. because she wants to have a cocktail and tune in. You never know. I think not. <laughs> I think she's watching Madrigals and the family Madrigal, and that's it. That's her whole media diet right now. Anyway, it's a great show. Everybody should watch it. The 11th hour, is it with Stephanie Rule? Is it is. It's called the 11th hour. It is. The 11th hour figured Stephanie probably don't call it is. 11th hour with Brian Williams anymore. Just slight change. I think he should have kept that. Yes, just that would have been with exciting. People. And so, yes, can yeah. you start using those folksy metaphors that he did? You know, like a like a two-headed chicken and a, you know, whatever. You know, he's got his own. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use my own. Brian had his own very special style that I wouldn't dare yeah. emulate or try to. All right. Okay. Well, I like those folks. I miss those. Anyway. Stephanie Rule, she's a big star at MSNBC, and she still manages to come on the show. I'm going to read us out. Today's show was produced by Lara Naiman, Evan Engel, and Taylor Griffin. Ernie Anderdat engineered this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to Pivot from New York Magazine and Vox Media. We'll be back next week for another breakdown of all things tech and business. Thank you, Stephanie. Stephanie.